every single person who comes in contact with you, they all have an impression of you. And depending on what you show them in that day, in that moment, it burns this idea of who you are. For example, I talked to my mom recently. No matter how old I get, she still looks at me like her baby. And she still is concerned like, do you have enough to eat? Is everything okay? She's still worrying about those kinds of things because forever, the impression that she's going to have is you are her child. For my students, they might see this really stern instructor who's just a really straight shooter. So that's the version that they see. And so what we want to do is we want to influence. We can't control it, but we want to influence other people's perception of us. And that's really what branding is. And I'll go to Marty Neumeier's definition of brand. Brand is a person's gut feeling about a person, company, service, organization. It's a gut feeling. And if enough people have the same gut feeling, then you have a brand. Hello and welcome. I'm Eric Corum, and you're listening to the Blueprint Podcast, where we explore the journey of high performance by learning from the struggles and triumphs of some of the most interesting people in the world. Today's guest is Chris Doe. He's the founder of two seven-figure businesses, the first of which is Blind, an Emmy award-winning motion design studio with over $80 million in total billings. The second is The Future, an online education company whose mission is to teach 1 billion people how to make a living doing what they love. In this episode, Chris explains what a brand really is, how to break through the noise of social media to find your audience, and the new kind of billionaire. Today's podcast is full of fantastic information from one of the world's best educators and designers. If you're looking for information and resources to improve your health, well-being, and performance, then sign up for my free high-performance newsletter. Just go to www.ericcorum.com and sign up now. This newsletter is my effort to bring zero-cost, high-performance resources and tools to anyone with the desire to improve. But now, it's time to lean in and learn from the best. Chris, I'm really excited to have you here today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Eric. It's my pleasure. So reading your bio and just kind of having followed you for a little while now, you are a self-proclaimed shy introvert. And it's very hard for me to wrap my mind around because you have built an international brand and a company that publicly proclaims that they want to educate a billion people on how to make a living doing what they love. Doesn't sound like a shy introvert to me. Can you you give me some color for this? (laughs) I know it seems hard to believe, and it's the reason why I'm talking about it, is because when I meet my students or when I'm speaking on stage and people come up and talk to me afterwards, and I struggle with this, I struggle with being around people. And most definitely in the classic definition of introvert, I lose energy by being around people. And it's something that I've steered clear away from for a really long time. And I remember, like, I'll tell you a little story. When I was in junior high, I was in Mr. Tuttle's class. And we had these old flip desks, you know, these metal desks that you flip up that you Mm -hmm. you can keep your stuff underneath. And all of a sudden, my nose started to bleed. And I was like, I don't want to call attention to myself. So I just flipped the desk up and I just held my nose and blood was streaming down my arm. Because I didn't, I didn't want to do anything. And so my, my classmate, who's sitting right next to me, turns off like, oh my God, you're bleeding all over the place. I'm like, hey, don't, you know, it's okay. And then that, of course, catches Mr. Tuttle's attention. He's like, what's going on? I said, oh, I'm just, just, it's a little blood. He's like, oh my gosh, go to the bathroom. And that's the kind of introvert that I am. And it's like, I don't want anybody to look at me. I don't want to be in a spotlight. And it very much feels like the spotlight. When anybody starts talking to you, I start to, to sweat, my heart rate starts going crazy. And these are things that I've struggled with for a really long time. So that's the introversion part. The, the whole like teaching a billion people, uh, it really came from getting clarity about what it is I want to do with my life. And I had a, a meeting with my management team and they're, they're like pushing back at me like, Chris, what are we doing? Are we making videos? Are we here to make money? What are we trying to do? And they pushed me back into a corner because prior to that, I hadn't articulated to them what it is that we're doing. You know, with all new companies, you're still trying to figure it out. So it's not like on day one, the mission statement's on the wall etched in stone or something. It, it was an evolution. And I told them, here's the thing. I was addressing Ben, one of my directors. I said, Ben, you have a little girl. 
when she turns 18, I want to make sure there's a viable alternative for her other than what we see today. So the time is ticking down and we need to start working on that. And I, I, when I say viable, I mean like parity. You can go to a private art school or you can take a bunch of our courses and receive a similar quality education. And that's a big task. So that night I went home and I'm like, what am I trying to do? And that's when I said, you know what? We're trying to teach a lot of people. We're, we're not just trying to build a lifestyle business. We want to change education. So I want to make it tangible and clear. It's a billion people. I think that's one in eight people. And we're going to need a lot of help. Wow. I didn't. Okay. So this is more than just design. Yes. You fundamentally want to change the way that people are educated, which is very timely. When did you come up with this mission statement or when was this moment of clarity? I think it's in mid 2019. I, I can't say exactly because before we're like, can we even just make money by teaching? So that was just the first question. It was like proof of concept. Is this even viable? We need market validation. And so when we started to do that, and we could see that the audience is growing, and yes, we can sustain ourselves. I, I think it's always been a thing of mine where you hit a goal and then you say, what's the next big goal? And you keep looking down and you just keep looking down, but you keep marching forward. And so that's when we kind of settled in on that. And I was also inspired by a, like a talk I heard from a guy named Jason Silva. And he talked about in the 21st century, there's going to be a new definition of billionaire. And a billionaire is going to be not a person who has a billion dollars in the bank, but a person who's made a positive impact on the lives of others, 1 billion other people. And that sounded so good to me. I want to be that kind of billionaire. And I say it sometimes for shock value, like I'm going to be a billionaire. And it was like, oh, here goes another person, but not the way that you think. And then I give them that definition. And it's like, oh, a little sleight of hand misdirection there. I love that. That's a genuine feeling. Like a real, what's the word? I'm searching for the word here, but this is this is more than just like, this is a real legacy thing. And it comes from a place of, of genuine character to say that you really want to impact a million people versus make a billion dollars, or sorry, impact a billion people. So is that what may, gave you the confidence to step out and to really build? Because like, look, if, if there's no Chris Doe, to me, eventually Chris Doe, you will know the success of your company when Christo can fade into the background and the future just keeps on moving. That's your company. But like you had to take a front and center a spotlight. Like what gave you the confidence to do that? And then, you know, how did you do that? There's a story I like to share with people. And it was in 2007. Mm -hmm. I remember that because... That was one of our highest grossing years in terms of revenue before the market crashed, right? 2007. And my business coach, someone I had been working with for, I think about seven, eight years at that point, he, we're sitting in my office and there are clients milling about in the lobby and there's production going on. It's not that often that clients are in the studio when my business coach is there. And he asked me this question. He said, why are we in here and why aren't you out there? Why aren't you meeting with your clients? And I told him, his name is Kier. I said, Kier, I, I, I don't know what to say. I, I, I don't know how to get in and out of conversations. There's a lot of weird awkwardness. And he's like, is that why? And, and he, he told me two things. And, and they, they stuck with me. He said, the first thing is, where clients go, it's really built around relationships. And if you're not there, if there's no FaceTime with you, the relationship will be built with your directors and your producers. So eventually your producers and your directors leave and your clients will follow them because they have no idea who you are. But he said, more importantly, you underestimate the power of being an owner. What do, you, what do you mean being an owner? So he threw this at me. He said, you know, imagine if you were to go to a restaurant and you're sitting there and you're having a good time with your wife and you're eating dinner and the chef came out from behind the kitchen and you came over to ask you how your meal was, make sure everything was doing okay. How would that make you feel? And I, I got his point really quick. It was like this idea that even things um, that are to the smallest detail and in these personal relationships matter to the people in charge. And it would mean the world to me. I mean, that's never happened to me before where the chef, the head chef would come back out and say, hey, my name's John or Mary and just want to know how your steak was today. Is there anything I could do to make it better? And that would just make me feel like I'm a really important person. 
And so he, he got my staff together and he told them, hey, here's the thing. It's important to the success and growth of this company for Chris to be in these meetings with your clients when they're here. It's vitally important. And it's your job to make him feel comfortable to be in those meetings. So here's what you're going to do. You're going to introduce him. In about two minutes, you're going to make up an excuse why he can't be there anymore. And you're going to pull him out. And that was me in the training. So that's 2007. Mm. And so what happened was they would enter the room and they, they would say, Hey, I want to introduce you to Chris. He's the founder and owner of the company. Um, and then I would come in and I'll say two or three things, be a little awkward. And then they're like, Chris, we got to steal you. We have another call with you, which obviously we didn't. And they would save me. And after a while of doing that, I started to feel like I can do this. And these were like maybe social introvert training wheels, you know? And they put me on the training wheels and pushed me into the room. And eventually I'm like, take off the training wheels. I can do this. I can ride his bicycle. <laughs> so then I would pop in and I would just crack a joke, say a couple things and say, you know, you're in good hands. I realize I'm mucking up the work here and I just need to get out of your hair. And if you ever need anything, let me know. I'll give you my cell phone, call me day or night. And it did make a difference. And so what Kier was, he would move the, the goalposts just a little bit out of my reach. So when he saw that I was comfortable mm-hmm. with that, he said, you got to do public speaking. Yeah, I mean, I look at your bio and I started going through all the places you spoke in. And I'm like, come on, man. Like shy introvert. Like how in the world did you, I mean, <laughs> Adobe, Max. I mean, that's a huge, you, I think I saw when you were setting up for that. That was a virtual thing, right? Yes. Yeah. I mean, who knows how many people, but I mean, Brisbane, Birmingham, yes. Boston. I mean, it's nuts. Like, how do you get up in front of an audience and do that? Like, where did you learn to create, become comfortable on a stage like that? Yeah, thanks for asking me about that. It is, it is a, a horrible, painful journey to get there. And I, I can paint it in great detail if you wish, but... I'd love to hear it. <laughs> I remember one of the first things that when Kier said, go volunteer for something... And it was true. It was like, I just needed to say hey, I'm interested. And people said, yes, we'd love to hear you speak. And I remember a couple, the first two times were really rough. I got to tell you. The, one of the first times where I spoke, it was, what is it? Cal State Dominguez Hills. And I didn't know it, but then it was one of my former professors. It was just the two of us. He would speak before me. This is my former professor from school, Wayne Hunt. And he was comfortable. He had funny stories. and had pithy quotes he would share with people. And talk about the stature of like what they're able to do. And here I am, like, what, what the hell am I doing? I move pixels around on a screen and make people laugh sometimes. And then I go up after him and I just felt, uh, I just felt that pressure, you know, when, when you have to compare yourself to someone, it just doesn't feel good. And then I went out and did my thing. And afterwards, Wayne said something very generous to me because I was like, oh, you, you were so great. And he goes, you know what? I'm just the warm up. They're here for you. What I do is boring. The kids want to see what you're doing. And I know he didn't need to say that. And I don't believe it to be true. But I felt it. I felt that there was this person who's so generous, one of my former professors, saying what I needed to hear at that time. Because if he had said something else, I might not have been back on stage again. And then, you know, when you do public speaking, things go wrong. And inevitably, the second time that I did public speaking, everything went wrong. The organizers asked me to send over my PowerPoint, my keynote presentation ahead of time so they can check the fonts. And they never checked it. So I get there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was bad. So it's like, oh, my God. And I'm speaking in front of a bunch of designers and typographers. The typefaces are all messed up. My notes are, are gone. They were, they, were my, they were my crutch and they're all gone. So I was panicking and trying to rewrite the notes from memory at that point. 10 minutes prior to getting up on stage. And they have a killer's row of speakers before me and after me. And I was just like, this is terrible. I'm up there. I'm stammering <laughs> my way through it. And it's just my voice is cracking. I even tell people, oh, I'm just like kind of nervous to be up here. And I know what they're feeling. They weren't <laughs> feeling like, go for it, kid. You got this. They were like, oh, let this be over because this is painful for us too. <laughs> and so I went back to my coach and I said, that was terrible, Kier. Because I'll tell you what you need to do. I want you just to tell your story and forget about what you're supposed to say. And so he set me in the right direction again. So you do this 10, 20, 30 times. Eventually it gets a little easier. It's never easy, but it does get easier. 
sounds like you had a great I coach. did. I worked with them for 13 years. And I think I'm a pretty smart guy. And just to put this in context, I met with him once a week for 13 years, for an hour and a half, sometimes two hours, like on clockwork, like rain, sleet, snow, holidays, whatever. He's like, we'll move the, we'll make sure we, we're meeting. And he, we did this consistently, persistently. And they were brutal because he's not that kind of coach that says, oh, you're an amazing human being. Good job. He's the kind of person who would say to you, and whose fault is that? And whose decision is that? And it was just like holding up. Did you find this coach? Or what, or, you know, how did you realize that you needed it? Um, it was in the early 2000s and we were, we're making decent money. And I told my wife, I want to spend this money. I want to invest it in hiring better people. That year we made three critical decisions. We hired a CPA. So we let go of our accountant and then we hired a financial advisor and I hired a coach. It just so happened I was having lunch with um, a friend of mine, Hugh Barton. And we're, we're sitting at an Italian cafe and I'm like, you know, small chit chat. I'm like, How's it going? And he's like, oh my God, it's going amazing. We doubled our business last year. Like, how'd you do that? He goes, we hired a business coach. And then I was thinking as we're eating, I need to get this person's phone number. Is it bad business form to like ask for this right now? And I just went for it. I said, would you mind connecting us? And he was a good guy, but he even paused. Like he paused, like give you my secret sauce. And then he just like said, yeah, for sure. Well, uh, of course. And I met with my business coach at my house and 13 years later, that's, that's how it happened. My goodness. I mean, I, I regularly seek out coaching. I, I just find that for personally, what, even if it's like a skill set that I want to work on, you, you know, like there's certain things I've been doing for years and years. And years. as a matter of fact, I'm currently engaged in a co-coaching project with a, a gentleman from Italy. And it's been a blast. I'm helping him with some things. He's helping me with some things. And it's just great to have a fresh perspective. I've never hired a business coach, but I think that may be something down the line. I want to go back to something here real quick. Then earlier in your story, you're already running a company. Your business coach tells you that you need to start meeting with your clients. Okay. Did skill get you to a certain point? Is that what enabled you to be a leader in a company, to have your own companies because you were so skilled? I, I think it was a combination of that, Eric. I, I believe I graduated at the top of my class. I had a really good portfolio, but that doesn't get you work. And, and I tried to figure this out. Like, how did I get there? And I think it was because of a couple of key relationships that I built, some from school and some in the professional world. But it all began in school. My very first professional job as a creative human being was through a friend of mine who graduated from the advertising program. And had recommended me to be a partner for her. I submitted my portfolio. I got that job. And based on that initial relationship, I built new relationships at the agency. And there's, there's a couple of things that I think I, I do want to highlight here in that you don't know this about me, but I'm a really hard worker. And I think if you take talent, take determination, and you put in a good dose of hard, hard work, you're going to succeed if you stay in the game long enough. And I remember when I was working at this ad agency in Seattle, name is Colin Weber. It was hard to work during the day because people would say, what about this? Look at this. And so many distractions. So really my workday began right around 6 p.m. when everybody started to go home. I remember asking my boss, his name is Kevin Jones. I said, is it okay if I stay here? Like, yeah, no worries. And I would stay there to two, three, four in the morning and I would just work. And that was my most productive time. And, and I just want to paint a picture for you so that the agency, big agency, totally empty at this time, only the cleaners, right? And I would just walk through there with my, my socks or barefoot. I'd walk through the hallways and I was just like taking in like, what am I doing here? Like, how did a kid like me wind up here? And then I would go for these walks like in a giant big circle and I come back, just kind of like space odyssey, you know, just walk around the perimeter, sit back down on my desk and then do the work. And my boss noticed this right away. And that's what got me noticed, which was, how hard I was going to work on these things. I wasn't going to phone this thing in. If you gave me something to do, no matter how dumb, and we were working on some pretty small ads, I put everything into it. And he noticed and he wanted to promote me right away. So it was about that. And then the, the ultimately, I started my own company and those relationships continued because then he gave me work. And if, if you do a good job for every single person that comes to give you money and they tell one friend, you're doing something really well. And that's, 
I think that's what happened. This is so critical for those that are starting out in their professional careers. I just talked to somebody who reached out to me on uh, LinkedIn and she's uh, up in Dallas, Texas. And we've gone back and forth because she's into tech, wearable tech and some other things. We're talking about career development. And I just started thinking about it. Like everybody that I've ever worked with that I promoted or wanted to keep around was somebody that was just an incredibly hard worker. Like you could just tell, not that they were burning themselves out. That's not what I'm talking about, but they took such incredible pride in their work. And I remember, Chris, when I, early in my career, my colleagues would actually kind of diss me for hard work. I would be in my office when the athletes were gone and I'd have my door closed and I just have my head in the book. And they're like, man, you need to stop reading so much. You need to stop researching all the time. And most of them are no longer, well, I'm out of the profession, but most of them didn't last very long or just kind of stayed where they were at. And I love the fact that you highlighted this, you know, talent determination, hard work, if you put it in, because it does, I think that's agnostic to the field that you're in. Yeah. So I want to kind of pivot here for a minute. I came from the world of sports, okay? And it's all about team all about that logo, right? <laughs> and the only people that were ever really allowed to have a public persona was the head coach. Everybody else was kind of suppressed, either intentionally or unintentionally. Sometimes the head coach wouldn't allow you to speak to the press because they wanted to control the, the narrative. And I think in business too, people that work for large corporations, whatever the company is, that's your identity. But now there's this thing called personal branding. And I started really trying to create a brand about a year ago. And my colleagues, some of them like, what are you doing? And I kind of told them a little bit about it. And there was just, some of them were really apprehensive. But what are people going to think? Like, why is it important to create a personal brand in today's global economy with social? Like, tell me why. Eric, you already have one. And everybody listening to this already has one. It's just most of them are unintentional. So okay. I have a whole theory about this, right? And I was talking, I, I think I heard this on the radio somewhere, where there's this idea that there's the multiverse or something, that there are an infinite number of versions of you that exist. And at first it sounds like, well, what, what kind of weird stuff is this kid smoking? I and mean, what is he talking about here? <laughs> what I'm talking about is this, is that every single person who comes in contact with you from your mom to your dad to your brothers and sisters to, to the, your clients and to the, to the old lady across the street, they all have an impression of you. And depending on what you show them in that day, in that moment, it burns this idea of who you are. And now that there's these infinite versions of you, like, for example, I talked to my mom recently. And no matter how old I get, and obviously I'm getting older, she still looks at me like her baby. And she still is concerned like, do you have enough to eat? Is everything okay? She's still worrying about those kinds of things because forever, the impression that she's going to have is you are her child. And she says, as long as I'm still alive, you're going to still be my baby. Mm -hmm. And that's a relationship that we have. And so for my mom, that's who she sees. For my students, they might see this really stern instructor who's just a really straight shooter, who's kind but critical. So that's a version that they see. And then to my little cousins, I'm like the LA guy. And I'm doing like the Hollywood thing, which I'm not, but that's what they see. And so what we want to do is we want to influence, we can't control it, but we want to influence other people's perception of us. And that's really what branding is. And I'll go to Marty Neumeier's definition of brand. Brand is a person's gut feeling about a person, company, service, organization. It's a gut feeling. And if enough people have the same gut feeling, then you have a brand. Mm. Right. So my mom has an impression and she only has one of one because they're not other moms. I only have one mom. But now I'm out into the world. What do they see? And how can I influence that? Because I'm a complicated person just like you. And if you were to look at the, to the totality of who I am, it's too much. It's like this giant spectrum. So I'm going to choose which parts that I feel most comfortable sharing with people and what I want to be known for. And I started to put that message out into the universe. And what you want to do, ideally, is you want to reduce your brand down to as few words as possible. 
Like, what do you believe in? Just a couple of words. Guy Kawasaki talks about this and he says, Nike, they have this just do it, but really it's genuine athletic performance. And that's what Nike's really about. You know, Apple might be like a smart, intuitive technology or something like that. And for us, for me personally, I started thinking about this and I said, well, I'm an introvert. You know, what's the big deal? But I'm a loud introvert and there are not that many loud introverts in the world. So I want to claim that space. By putting together two words that are kind of juxtaposed in meaning, I find something that's between two things and I find that sweet spot, the gap that exists between two big things. There's a lot of introverts in the world. There are some really loud people in the world. But in terms of where I fit, I fit right in between those two. So I, I then put that into my bio so that people know. And I purposely say this, I'm a loud introvert. I'm a loud introvert. And it starts to explain the story so that without the context of this long conversation that you and I just had about my, my past and what I'm trying to do in the future, they get a sense of who you are right away. Now, you can't put words together just because they sound good. They have to be true to who you are. Because otherwise, then you're just faking it. Right. So all of what you say, do, and how you treat other people come from this place. And if you have rich stories to back up this claim that you're a loud introvert, then you start, you're going to start to curate a brand and you're going to develop that. And that's really important. That is fantastic. So a brand is not a logo, colors, or typography. And that, I think that's where most people shift to immediately. They're like, I gotta, I gotta build this brand. And then they, they think, I got to have the swoosh or the, or the jump man. When I see a jump man, I get the, the gut feeling I get is I'm invincible. Because when I was a kid, Michael, people can say what they want. Michael Jordan walked on air. You know, I had the posters in my room. I was terrible at basketball. But, you know, there was only a couple of teams you could watch anywhere. You could watch Notre Dame on NBC. You could watch the Atlanta Braves on TBS. And the Chicago Bulls were guaranteed to be on basketball, on television. And so everybody was a Bulls fan. But when I watched Jordan play, and then the branding behind that is just, you know, you see that. I still kind of get a little goose. I want to have that logo. You know what I'm saying? How do you transition into something, though, that's visual? How do you take that gut feeling and transfer it to something that somebody can see? Because what you see makes you react in an emotional way through certain parts of the brain, one of them being the amygdala. Yeah, so we need shorthands, right? Because the story is too complicated. So a 10-minute story is too complicated. So we reduced it down to two words. Uh, for me, like I said, it's loud introvert. And if I turn those two words into a symbol, and over time, if I keep living up to this thing, the abstraction of it then comes to represent the whole thing. The Nike logo doesn't really mean anything. A Jordan silhouette, the Jumpman logo, doesn't mean anything without Jordan. Because they're... Mm -hmm. There's 100,000 basketball players. We don't have that same feeling. And a story and a relationship is built, one that's implied, where you watch him on the screen and something happens to you and you're like, this guy is so clutch. He's such a professional. And there's attributes there that you're just telling yourself what is happening. And then you attribute that to him. And then if he says, this is the mark that represents me and my tribe, now that, that symbol has meaning to you. So that symbol is, is a silhouette of him splayed out, like floating in the air with his hand up, right? Mm -hmm. And there's the NBA symbol, which is, I think, of Jerry West dribbling. And that might have no feeling for you at all. And you could say, well, there's two silhouettes, but they have totally different meaning. And the same thing with the Major League Baseball logo, an icon. So it's the story that you tell yourself. And over time, if Jordan is consistent, if he carries himself a certain way, then you start to feel that about him and his brand. And we're just looking for shorthand everything. Everything just gets reduced. So that's where the, the picture is worth a thousand words. So that one symbol takes you back to the different championships when he stepped out, when he played baseball, when he got back in. Maybe it represented the time that he lost his father and pushed through. Maybe for some new fans, they watched, I think it was The Last Dance. And that's Amazing. Cool, right? <laughs> him crying on the floor after he won. Just, it summed up everything that that man was about. Mm -hmm. You know, he shows up as the professional and he keeps it together until he, he, he doesn't have to anymore. And then he's a human being right then and there. Yes. So that's All what it, that. yeah. So you can come up with a symbol that's a circle with a star next to it. And it doesn't have any meaning. 
until you start to tell your story, Eric, until people get to know who you are, what you stand for, and they and you give them enough time to to see that you're the real thing, mm-hmm. the symbol will have no meaning. Is it Marty Newmeyer that also says a brand is not what you say you are, but what others say you are? It is. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So you've got to tell that story. You got to really control that narrative the best as you can. Yeah, you shape it, right? So you'll see like some of the people who have like a really big personal brand, like Gary Vaynerchuk, mm-hmm. goes on stage, there's thousands of people there. And he's like, you know, how many people know who I am? And then, you know, some, so he's like, okay, there's a lot of people here who don't know who I am. So I was a kid born in Belarus, Soviet Union. He tells a story, the immigrant story. And it's a fantastic, a fantastic American tale. The immigrant story that comes to America, who works really hard, doesn't have special gifts, but just keeps at it and then achieves the American dream. That story will be told forever as long as America is still around. Mm. Gary V, man, he, he, he's an interesting character to me because part of, just personally, part of me doesn't like the swearing. Yeah. I, I just find it to be very, like, he doesn't need that. But mm-hmm. then he's really leaned into this uh, giving and just giving to give. And you can tell that there's a part of him that really, I mean, at least from what I can see, like, he really does care about, like, he, you know, and he they do a masterful job. Him talking to some kid that, you know, reached out to him on a DM. I mean, it's very well crafted. But uh, there is some, he does say some very poignant things that you're like, wow, okay. He's a deep thinker. And when they ask him on the spot, he's, I mean, you can tell he's been thinking about this stuff. He's a special person indeed. So if you have a successful brand, how do you get it out there? And I just got to say, like, you have, when did you get on Instagram? I I think I was on Instagram relatively early, but not seriously like everyone else. Mm -hmm. Somebody asked me this question last night. And they're going through my feed and I've deleted a lot of the old pictures, but I used to like take pictures of my shoe. Um, hey, here's an amazing breakfast I had. Here's the, my cute son doing something stupid. Mm-hmm. And of course, everybody does that because we're like, what the heck is Instagram all about? Is that a photo sharing app? And of course, it's not just that. It's a lot more if you really want to grow. But where I got a lot of traction, I think, was in 2019. So I started doing something different. Instead of posting my work, I started to use the platform to teach. And I got the idea from a guest of mine, Michael Janda, because I had seen Michael like posting things. He's a graphic designer. And all of a sudden, I started to see him grow really fast. And I'm a, I'm a hyper-competitive person, Eric. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm starting to see him like get to 30,000 followers in like two months, which took me forever to get. I was like, what is going on? So I look at his thing. And then when, when he was on the show, I, I asked him, what are you doing here? I see that you're growing really fast. And he goes, you know, I'm just using this multi-slide thing. And I told him right on air. And if people want to look up that episode, I'm like, I'm doing that. He goes, you should do that. Because I was thinking prior to that, I was sharing designs that I made. And now you're competing with every designer that's ever made a thing. And that's a lot of people. Mm-hmm. The part of branding is trying to find space and that kind of noise where it's kind of unclaimed. You're going for that blue ocean strategy. And I was thinking, I've been teaching for some time now. I have a couple dozen design decks, which have hundreds of slides each. This is going to be an easy thing for me. Started working on it. And then my account skyrocketed, mostly because I was concerned that Michael was going to catch, catch me and just surpass me. And I'm just, I can't live with it. <laughs> I just can't live with it, Eric. I'm not going to let that happen, right? In the meanwhile, I'm chasing someone who's ahead of me, which is, my former intern who's managing the futures account. So I'm caught between Michael and L who's like leading me and I need to catch up. And so I, I, I put in my like analytical hat. This is where the logical introverts like, let's get to work, analyze posts, analyze posts and keep tweaking, tweaking. I hit my stride. My account grows really fast. I'm growing 10,000 followers a week. In the design community or was it niche to the design community? Or do you, I mean, I mean, I found you, I mean, but like, was it that you, you hit that, like people don't know what the blue ocean strategy is, is like, you know, the red ocean is, is like where everybody's competing. It's very muddy, chummy waters. The blue ocean is a sub niche of a market where like, instead of serving the, you're not going to be the creative designer for everybody. You're going to be the creative designer for lawyers, whatever. Right. So you find that blue ocean and then you go exploit it. I mean, 10,000 a week. Yeah. Ridiculous. 
Yes, it is. And so here's the thing is if I make designs like logos or I did skateboard designs just because it was fun with type. Now, there's a million typographers out there, designers who could design better than me, for sure. And that's the red ocean. So I started to use Instagram to teach creative people how to think about design, about branding, about marketing, about business, how to price. Just a teaching platform. Forget about self-promotion. I just want to teach you things. And so I'm, I'm a big believer in this. If you give people value, they give you something back, their time and attention. So I'm not trying to sell you anything. There's no course. I'm just, here it is. And I put this content out and I'm a teacher and I'm doing this and I'm doing it really fast, which is uh, what helped me to grow. Sometimes I was posting four times a day. Oh my goodness. Oh yeah. It was a full-time job for me because I, I was in a competition with myself. I was like, where can this go? So in the beginning, it was like once uh, every three days, then once every two days, once a day, twice a day, four times a day. And this is all I was doing. Basically, from the time I got up until the time I went to sleep, I was either writing a carousel, designing it, or posting something. And I was just, I wasn't sure because you know how some people say, if you post content, don't overwhelm your followers. I found that not to be true. If it's good content, like if there was a new Star Wars series, like every four hours, I'm sign me up. I'm not getting (laughs) you know, but I'll watch it. Totally watch it. Marvel and Star Wars, you got me. I can't consume enough. So if it's good, people will show up. It's just if you're going to spam them, well, no amount of spam is good. Yeah. So I was doing that and I grew really fast. So how does somebody get started on social media? I mean, you, 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 you had a successful business. You had a successful brand. You had the ability to sit there and work for 12 hours a day on social media. Like there's people that go to work, they're got a side hustle. And these are the people you're teaching, right? And they're trying to build a a social media presence so that they can serve folks, so they can find their own blue ocean. Like, where do you start? Yeah. So one thing I would do is I would reframe even that idea of you're going to do social media. It sounds trite. It sounds like, oh yeah, that's what young people who do don't have anything better to do. I want you to think of it as I want to write I want to articulate. I want to do public journaling. I want to share what it is I've learned. Mm -hmm. I have an exercise I give people. I say to them, like, if you don't know where to start, get a piece of paper and write down the one thing you want to be known for. Just write that down in a big Sharpie thing or write it down and try to use as few words as possible. One thing you want to be known for and draw a box around that. That's your fortress. And then surround your fortress with an army of ideas. Just for one, you know, one sitting Write down as many things that you know about this one topic and fill up that page. And just remember, like, you know, they used to have like these cheat sheets for tests in high school where you can bring in your own cheat sheet of notes. This is your cheat sheet. This is going to be your story Bible. This is your talking points. And write as many things as you can. Fill up the entire page. The denser it is, the better it is. Now, if it's not dense, it's telling you you need to go learn more. Okay. And if you get stuck, here's a couple things you can do. Uh, I, I learned this trick from Austin Cleon, which was, to go and find quotes that are roughly or tangentially related to this one thing you want to be known for. And the more obscure the quote, the better. So he has a bucket of quotes that he drops in his books. And when he speaks and you're like, oh, that's good. And he's pulling it from all over the universe from musicians, artists, poets, philosophers, world leaders, et cetera. So it's kind of this really rich way of understanding this topic via sound bites. So you're going to fill this whole page up and then you go back and say, which are my most profound ideas and that I could expand on? And then you want to underline those or put an asterisk next to them and then start to speak about that. And I think it's really important. I learned this uh, idea from David C. Baker in his book, The Business of Expertise, is that you gain clarity through articulation by transferring your, your ideas into some tangible form, spoken word, written, art, sculpture, performance, art, whatever it is, That's when the idea becomes real. So it's necessary for all of us to know what it is that we think by expressing it in some form. So if you're a doctor, a lawyer, a business person, don't think of it as social media because you're you're probably not going to do that right. Think of it as I'm writing, I'm telling a story, I've got an idea that I want to share with the world, something that's helped me in my life that I hope will help you. Start from that place. And then it just doesn't become like a, a weird idea that, oh, we're all doing something now on social media. So I guess I have to. I love that. 
So that translates to any platform, Twitter, Clubhouse. You're burning it up on Clubhouse right now. <laughs> now, granted, you started, what, a month ago, three weeks ago? How many followers do you have now? Close to 40,000. <laughs> I can imagine you are just on a, I, I think it was 100 hours you told me the other day. What do you see the difference, though? Let's just talk about Clubhouse for a second. I think it's a very interesting platform. Like, what have you found to be unique about it? How do you now you're you can no longer teach with visual images? You have to teach with words. Yeah. How are you doing this? Yeah, I love Clubhouse. There's some really bad parts to Clubhouse that I think will work itself out. I think all new platforms suffer through this. And the analogy I'll make is I believe. Before Twitch was Twitch, they were doing live streaming and people started to film horrific things like crimes in progress, mm. right? And then they had to figure out a way to shut that down. And they have to do that before the, the whole platform becomes a cesspool of just bad actors and, and people with poor intentions. So what's happening in Clubhouse, I think the lure is this, is that the technology barrier is gone. You basically have an iOS device and you don't need anything special. And I love that it's voice only because there are a lot of people who have self-image issues. Like I'm not tall enough, I'm not pretty enough, whatever it is. So now we just judge people based on the character of what they say. And it's happening in real time. So you can, you, your character will be revealed whether you like it or not. And I say this to people, if you're a generous, kind, giving person that's compassionate, that's going to come through. If you're a bully, aggressive person who abuses people, and you're a racist or whatever it is, that's going to come through too. So I would say that if you're not righty and you, you don't, you're, you're not savvy enough to do this, I would suggest you just listen because you can do probably some irreparable harm to your personal brand. Mm. Like not all of us were trained to do public speaking. And so it takes some time to sort out. And I've seen people do this now and they get blocked off the platform and their reputation is ruined. Yeah, because you really have to think about what you're saying. You can't copy somebody else or people are going to know it. And you have to be a, you can only, because if you're on there for a hundred plus hours, like you're going to get tired, you know, and if you want to see how somebody really is at a little pressure. Yeah. I mean, you put 400 people in a room on there and the good thing, I don't, I mean, you and I did one together. I didn't really notice it, but like, um, you do feel a little, you know, hey, I'm publicly speaking here. I better be yeah. on my A game. I think it's a good way to sift things out too. Yeah, I just love what you're doing. I love, And I've been looking at the diversity of topics you've been talking about. I mean, like, my goodness. How do you come up with all these different ideas? I, I'm just trying a lot of things, Eric. So, I, and same thing with Instagram, same thing with YouTube. I'm a big believer in try lots of things, make a mess, fail often, fail fast. And then mm -hmm. in, in it, you'll find the, the gems. I have no idea if something's going to work until I do it. And then when you do it and a lot of people stay and it starts to grow and you're like, oh, I guess they do like this. Mm -hmm. And you know afterwards too, and I love this part about Clubhouse, is the feedback is pretty immediate. I know that they're not on stage with you, so you can't hear them and you can't really see them. But when you go back on social media and people are talking about the topics that you shared and they're sharing those ideas, that makes me really happy. One is because as a teacher, I want to make sure you walk away with something. And so when you, you, when you paraphrase what you've learned, it confirms or it tells me, you know, they, they missed the point and I messed up. That's my responsibility because I'm, I'm using that platform to teach as well. And some of the other beautiful things, and somebody shared this the other day, you could admire an author, a celebrity, somebody from afar and talk about them and they can just bounce into your room. There's that serendipity kind of chance encounter that is very real on Clubhouse. It's kind of wild. And I don't see that happening anywhere else. So I'm on Twitter. I'm on all the social platforms. But if I at mention somebody, they might respond. The likelihood is pretty low. But in Clubhouse, for whatever reason, you have people from all walks of life, from successful entrepreneurs to artists and musicians to creative people and just normal, everyday, regular folk. And they're all in this platform and they're just hopping from room to room and then boom, there they are. And so it's kind of wild, at least for I now. I love it. Right? I, I love it too. I, I, did one, I did a post recently about Hugh Jackman 
And it was like the best celebrity advice I've ever heard. Like from a scientific perspective, he nailed it. And I was just hoping that Hugh saw that because I wanted to like be like, hey, from a scientist like Hugh, great job. It would be great if Hugh dropped in. You know, I'm not really awestruck by many celebrities, but he's somebody that I just think you never know. But he just seems to have really good characters, been married for a long time. He's just an all around good guy. And when I saw him give great advice, I was like, yes, Hugh, you're the man. <laughs> I want to ask another, uh, ask you about something else. A thousand true fans. So like, let's say you're, you're not doing social media anymore. You're sharing, you're creating, you're learning, you're educating people. What is this thousand true fans concept and, and how would it be important for somebody that's trying to build a brand and trying to help other people? Yeah, I'm going to recommend everybody go and search a thousand true fans and you're going to find the original article, which is incredible that it was written quite a long time ago. And it's written by Kevin Kelly. He's one of the founding executive editors of Wired Magazine. So obviously this guy knows what he's doing. And he talked about like how creative people don't need like a patron anymore to support them. Because if you want to make $100,000 a year, and he says that that's a pretty good living for a lot of people. Obviously, it depends on what city you live in. But all you need is a thousand true fans. You don't need a million true fans. You need a thousand true fans. And he has this definition of what a true fan is. A true fan is willing to drive 120 miles to go and see you at your concert or your book signing. A true fan will buy your audiobook, your ebook, and the physical book of the same book. A true fan will buy a, a CD or DVD compilation of your greatest works that you give out for free. They would do that because they want to see you succeed. And so a true fan is willing to spend $100 on you every single year, which is not a lot of money for a true fan. And so if you have a thousand people who are willing to give you $100 for something that you do to see you continue to do what it is that you do, that you could live a creative, meaningful life. And I think that would be wonderful. I, I, I know that's not what everybody's ambition is, but if everybody in the world made $100,000, I, I think it would be a wonderful world to live in. And you can do this. And so you don't need, you don't need somebody like a big record publishing company or a, a book publishing company to say, you're deserving. Your message is worth hearing. You could do this yourself through the, the multitude of social platforms that are already available to build your tribe. And you just got to serve and put out good content that connects with them. Is that how you build this group of people? Because if you have 5,000 followers, how many, I mean, not every one of those people are going to be a true fan. It may be like what, I, you know, you talk about sales conversion rates. What, what is the true fan conversion rate? Well, if they're your true fan, they, they need to be like a hundred percent conversion rate. So, <laughs> I have a half a million followers on Instagram. I don't know how many of those people are true fans. Mm-hmm. Really don't. For example, I could do a test, right? My test would be, hey, I got, I'm writing a new book. Let's say I'm writing my second book. It's going to drop. It's going to be 35 bucks. Will you guys pre-order it? That's how you'll know, right? And if they sign up for it, that's how many true fans you have. That's kind of pretty clear at that point. So mm-hmm. some people are just following you because they like what you do. They're not quite ready to support you. Uh, but here's the interesting thing, Eric. This has surprised me a lot. I'm, okay, we already talked about this. I'm an introvert. And so it's awkward for me to be around people. And then I now travel and I do public speaking. And then whatever city I'm in, I'm like, I wonder how many of our fans are here. And so the day before that morning, I'll say, hey, I'm at this hotel. Meet me in the lobby at 10 a.m. And I'll hang out with you for an hour. And then I go down to the lobby and I sit there and then sure enough, people show up and it's really cool. And some of them, like I took a train, I, I got on a plane today to come and see you. I'm like, don't come, don't get on a plane to come and see me for an hour. That's crazy talk. That's how, you know, those are your true fans right there. They show up because you ask them to show up and you're willing to give them something for nothing and they will show up. For you. I love this. Last question. One of the things that intrigued me the most about you, I saw some amazing videos. You're just a natural teacher. I should restate that. After learning <laughs> your story, you are a trained teacher, but you really do care. I can just tell there's something about you that really cares. And I saw you wearing a hat that says, God is a designer. And that to me was like, interesting. Where did that come from? Why, okay. did you, why do you wear that hat? Here's the hat right here. Oh, so, love it. Okay. 
There's a couple of things. Okay, we we have a little time, so I'll tell you this story. I was at a wedding, a Filipino wedding, right? And I was there with my wife and some my former student getting married. And I see this really hip looking dude. I don't know if he's a DJ or whatever, but he had the just the coolest style. He's a Filipino guy. He's wearing a flat brim snapback cap. And he's just wa- walking around like, honey, that guy looks really cool. And she goes, he does look cool. Because before that, I did not wear hats. I'm like, I'm going to go find me a hat to wear too. Because I want to be cool like the cool kids. <laughs> so I start wearing a hat. And I found this hat. And it says type. T-Y-P-E. And it's from the Type Directors Club. And as soon as I wear that hat, it starts to become part of my personal brand, my own visual identity. And so people can see me from, from a mile away. And it's like, that's that guy. Because not many people have that hat. Okay, so I'm wearing the hat. And this guy who's a friend and a fan reaches out to me. He's like, Chris, I'm a born-again Christian. I have this brand. I've been working on this thing for 10 years. It's called God is Designer. Can I send you the hat? I say, I make no promises to you. You can send me anything you want. It arrives in the mail. I open it up and I'm looking at it. I'm like, you know what? This is Helvetica. God is Designer Justified Love. How can I not wear this hat? It's a little controversial for people. I'm going to wear it. And so I start wearing this thing. And then, of course, then a lot of interest pours in. He can't keep up with the demands for the hat. He just can't. He's a small business owner. and He's a graphic designer. So I do a deal with him. I said, I tell you what, let me manufacture it for you. I'll take care of everything. I'll give you 25% of every sale that we make. He says, deal, done. So I reach out to manufacturers. We, we make a bunch of them. We sell them. They sell out all the time. And then I return it back to him. I was like, it's time for you to take over. Now that there's interest in your company, I wish you well. And so he and I are doing collaborations together. But that's the hat. Everywhere I wear this hat, a conversation is going to begin. Not always pleasant, but a conversation will begin. And I like that. As an introvert myself, I want to invite people to come and talk to me because I don't know how to talk to you. And so for sure, this is going to begin a conversation. Young, old, men, women, I'm going to have a conversation with someone. That is the perfect way to end this podcast. How do people find you? How can they get your courses? Because you have some amazing material. Thank you. Yes. I'm on almost every social platform. You can find me at the Chris Doe. And Doe is spelled D-O, at the Chris Doe on every platform. If you want to find out more about our courses and our programs, go to thefuture.com. And the future is spelled without an E. And people are like tweeting at me like, Chris, where did the E go? Why is it not without an E? So, well, we just dropped the ego. That's it. The future has no E. Well, Chris, thank you for coming on today. This uh, this is spectacular. I'm so pleased to have you here. You're an amazing man. I love the work you're doing. Thank you very much, Eric. It was a real pleasure. Thanks for joining me today on another episode of the Blueprint Podcast. If you found this episode valuable, sign up for my high-performance newsletter at www.ericcorum.com. And if you want to stay current on everything high performance, follow me on Instagram at Eric Quorum, Twitter at Eric Quorum, Facebook, and I'm also on LinkedIn.